Welcome to Our Family Stories, the only podcast that shares stories about my awesome family. We have the Waits, the McKinleys, the Smolens, the Crofts, and the Clausens. And we have a few visitors here and there. I love you guys, and I hope you all enjoy this episode of Our Family Stories. Hey guys, Josh has asked me to tell the story of the prom bomb. And to tell the story right, I gotta give a little build up to the story and why it was what it was. So, go back to, let's see, I think it was October 1990. Mom just got remarried to Dennis, and at the time we were going to South, or at least I was going to South Junior High, and I was in the middle of my uh, ninth grade year, so at South Junior High, that meant, you, you know, being a freshman, that you were the top of the class, so she got remarried, and we moved over to the other side of town, and I started going to Centennial, where freshman meant you were the lowest rung in the school, so I kind of felt like I was flying high, had some friends, life was good, and then we moved over, and I was the bottom rung in the school, had absolutely no friends, and it was miserable. I was basically a, a total loser. I would, uh, I remember, like, in the during lunchtime, I'd walk the halls just acting like I had somewhere to go, and I'd go through the lunch line and not get anything and then go back through the lunch line just so I pretended like I had something to do. So, yeah, that was, that was kind of a pretty pretty bad shape, but something happened. So, finished off that year, and uh, that school year, and then between my freshman and sophomore years, I grew six inches and stretched out, dropped my glasses for some contacts, and uh, basically when I started my sophomore year, things had changed and uh, I started to get noticed a little bit. So that was that was fun. And um, I remember my English class in the back right corner. I, she had a signed seat and I sat in the very back right corner. And right in front of me was uh, the sophomore head, head cheerleader. And so she sat right in front of me and for the first I don't know how long she would never turn around, and I'd always try to make jokes or and uh, just you know get her attention. And long story short, eventually she started turning around, and we uh, started talking and, and getting to know each other. And we didn't really talk outside of that class, but inside that class, um, we we kind of had a little you know in-class friendship kind of thing, and and uh, it was just blew me away to you know go from being a total loser to actually talking to the super popular girl and. That girl turned out to be Becky Abel, and that's where the prom bomb starts. After uh, the whole date went down, I wrote it out and typed it up on my mom's encouragement, so I'm just going to kind of plug through here and read what I wrote down, mistakes and all, and I hope you enjoy it. So the prom bomb, based on a true story, dedicated to all the bachelors who have tried, by Tim Waite. It all started the Thursday before Easter. I asked the girl of my dreams, Becky Abel, to go to prom. I asked her by decorating her room with balloons and writing, quote, will you go to prom with dot 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 on the balloons. I had a note attached to her door saying, quote, Becky, now it's time to play a game. Find the note that hides my name, close quote. We, me and Rob Blazik, had, a little, had little plastic eggs with notes inside them saying with dot 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 and we hid the one egg with my name inside her aquarium. 
She got my invitation, and the next day she wrote, she said that it was fun looking for everything, and she liked the jelly beans that I hid all around her room. That Sunday after church, we went to Grandma and Grandpa Ison's house to celebrate Easter. When we got home, we found an Easter bucket full of goodies on our porch. We took it inside, and it had a bunch of those little Easter chocolates wrapped in foil and a squished little bunny inside one of the eggs, uh, along with some other candies, and a note that basically told me to unwrap the chocolates to find the answer. The first one we opened had an N on it. I started to worry. We opened the rest of them, and we found a Y, E, and a, a S. Yes, it was. Ex- I was excited and couldn't wait for the dance. The same time all this was going on, I was, pull- I was working on a research paper in my English class. I was doing my paper called Pulling the Plug. It was a paper about if it was ethically and morally right to pull the plug to those who were dying. That following Tuesday, I was on my way to first parade when I ran into Rob, Bla- Rob Blazik and Dave Fielding. They were hungry and they decided that they wanted to go out for some breakfast. It sounded good to me because I was hungry. So we took off and went to Albertsons. After a couple of donuts, I talked them into taking me to go rent my tux. When we got to Tuxedos, Tuxedos Incorporated, we found, it, we found out that it was closed. So we went next door to Shopco and went in their electronics department. They had a Sega system that was set up so you could play on it, so we took turns playing some basketball game. We were really getting into it and had a lot of fun being competitive, but it got time to be when the tux shop was open, so we ran over there and rented the tux. And after screwing around for a little while, we headed back to school. We never did end up getting a truancy for skipping. The following Friday, Dave, Rob, Aaron, and I got together to plan prom. After some big-time brainstorming, we came up with a plan. Wake them up by kidnapping them around 8 in the morning, then go over to Dave's house where his horses were. We'd get the horses and take them up riding in the foothills somewhere and have a little picnic. Then we'd ride back out and drop off our dates at home and then pick them up in a couple of hours and go over to Melanie Trout's house where all the parents would be gathered for pictures. Then go to prom for early pictures. Next, we'd go to the top of the Hoff, a restaurant on the top of a building overlooking Boise. After that, go back to the dance and stay there till about 11.30. Then head up towards Banks, where there's some natural hot springs where we could build a campfire. After soaking for a while, we'd roast some s'mores, then go to sleep and wake up a couple hours and drive back to Boise and go to breakfast at Village Inn. Then we'd drop off our dates. After we got done planning, I had to convince my mom into letting me do this. I set her down and told her not to say anything until I was done talking. After I got done telling her the plan, I could tell that she wasn't too happy and wanted another plan. Well, to make a long story short, after a lot of smooth talking and what-if questions from her, she said that she would let me do it. Next, I talked with Becky, mom, and mom, Becky's mom and told, her the, told, and told her our plans. She didn't have any problem with it except she thought that I might get tired and might have a problem staying awake. It was getting down to prom time, and it was Friday before, and I was cramming to finish my paper. I got it all done the night before and needed to make some final corrections before typing it up. I came home for lunch with Kevin Everett and Jeremy Loveland to finish typing my paper. It took me a little little longer than I expected, so we were going to be absent for fifth period anyway, so we decided to play some basketball. I beat Jeremy in all four games we played, and I took on Kevin. I must have been tired. It went into OT, and he ended up beating me on a a long-range three-pointer that he just threw up and it went in. I couldn't believe it. He had never beaten me before, and now he's never going to let me forget it. I ended up turning in my paper in after school and getting 50 points extra credit for turning it in three days early. I didn't even know it was due until next Tuesday. After I turned in my paper, I thought that all my worries were over and that I could have a nice, relaxing, fun weekend. Boy, was I wrong. Now getting back to the dance. 
After school, we went over to Dave's house, where we were trying to come up with a plan B because the weathermen were forecasting rain and clouds. We never did come up with a set plan, but we went to Alverson's and bought our lunches for the picnic. Bought some sandwich meat, a cheese, hoagie, hoagie rolls, Hawaiian punch, chips, and some cookies. Dave wanted chicken because we found out if we waited around for another 20 minutes, we could get a good deal. I was worried because it was kind of late, and I knew that I was it was going to be a long day tomorrow. Oh yeah, my mom left town for the weekend on a business, so I didn't have the car for prom except for the Bobcat. Earlier, I was thinking about asking Brad, my step-uncle, about borrowing his awesome 1989 Trans Am for the dance. I called him up Friday afternoon with my fingers crossed. I told him, quote, Brad, I need a huge favor from you, close quote. He asked, is it going to cost me any- anything? <laughs> that was a perfect question. I came back, nope, not a cent. In fact, I'll wash your car, fill it up with gas, and vacuum it out for free. After some more smooth talking and talking with his wife, and him talking with his wife, he decided to let me use a car. After that, I ordered my corsage from Wearmart, and we picked it up tomorrow. And we would pick it up tomorrow. So I went to bed, and I couldn't get any sleep because I was too excited for the date. I finally fell asleep and rested up for the big day. I woke up about, I woke up about 6 o'clock in the morning, took a shower, got dressed up in a cowboy outfit. I couldn't remember where Brad lived, so I woke up Amber Waite and had her go with me. But it turned out that she wasn't much help because she overshot his house by about two miles. After cruising up and down many streets, I, remember, I finally remembered where he lived. I dragged my generous uncle out of bed, and we walked over to his car. He handed me the keys, and I slipped into the car. I couldn't, I couldn't get this car started. I was sitting there making a fool of myself as, I, as my trusting uncle watched, with the, watched as his baby wouldn't wake up. Finally, I got her started and pulled her out of the cul-de-sac nice and easy. I got her on the main road and tried out her acceleration. Oh, how sweet it was. We got home and Amber helped me clean it out and give her a quick wash. After getting her looking nice, we loaded up all the things I would need. I had a little bit of more fun driving the car while heading over to Becky's house. When I got there, I quietly knocked, the do- knocked on the door and her mother answered. She was wondering if we were going to come because Becky told her that we weren't coming weren't coming till 11.30. Well, that's what I told her because we wanted to give her a little surprise. So her mom had me wait in the living room while she went and woke her up. A few minutes later, Becky came walking out, and boy, did she look great. But then again, what's new? Her morning attitude could use a little work, but she had the looks down cold. I let her brush her teeth and put on some jeans. Then I loaded her up in the dream machine, turned on some country music, and headed over to Dave's house. I was running a little behind, so when I got there, everybody was already waiting for us. Everybody liked my outfit. I was wearing jeans, t-shirt, a cowboy shirt over that, some cleats, and a big old cowboy hat on to top everything off. We went down where Dave's horses were and we got them all brushed up and got their reins and saddles on. We had a hard time getting all the horses in the trailer, but after some whipping and a couple of tries, we got them all loaded up. We took off to a spot in the foothills, a couple miles west of Simplot's house. When we got out, that is when we put the bits in their mouths. We, we got them all mounted up and headed up the trail. I was sitting on the back, so I was kind of scared because I could only hold on to the bottom of the saddle. I felt like I was going to fall off. After we got to the top of the hill, I found a better way to hold on, so I felt safe. Becky and I took the lead and headed back down the hill on the other side. Going down was much, much easier and much more fun. This time I didn't have to worry about holding on because I was pressed up against her, and so you see why that was more fun. We got to the bottom and I hopped off and opened the gate. Dave and Allison were having a hard time getting down the hill. Their horse didn't have a saddle on it, and they also had the feistiest horse, so they kept falling off. At the bottom of the hill, Dave and Allison fell off again, and this time the horse stepped on Allison's foot, and so she thought it might have broken her foot. So she pressed on, and we all mounted up and headed down the trail. 
Becky and I were getting along really well. We were, having a, we were having a halfway interesting conversation, and it seemed like she was having fun. We went along the side of the hill till we got to a stream where there was a herd of crow, cows. Crossing the stream was fun because the horses, horses liked to splash in the water. It was turning out to be a beautiful day, and the scenery was awesome. We took off up another hill. Melanie and Aaron's horse took off so fast that all the other horses followed it, and a bunch of mud was kicked up and landed on us. As we were riding up the hill, our horse was starting to get tired. We were going up a steep part when our horse collapsed. We just jumped off and walked up the rest of the way. At the same time, my backpack with all of our lunch in it had opened up, and our whole lunch was spread out all over the muddy hill. <laughs> we picked it up and brushed it off and packed it all up again. Our horse must have had asthma because he was breathing hardcore, so we walked it up the rest of the way. We got to the top of the hill, and there was a big pond with a big green meadow and some abandoned mines. It was totally cool looking. We tied it, we tied it up and sat next to the pond and had our lunch. Towards the end of the lunch, all of a sudden it started hailing. Covered everything up and jumped inside Rob's poncho while Becky fed a horse and her apple. She came back, we found some, partially, some partial cover under some trees. After about 10 to 15 minutes, the hill finally stopped. We were debating whether or not to play any games, but since it was muddy and cold, we just stood in a circle and talked. After a while, we decided to head back. Dave decided to switch and put the saddle that was on our horse on his horse with the attitude, so Dave and Allison rode the nicer horse bareback. While we rode back, the lively one with the saddle, Becky wanted to give me a chance to control her horse, so I hopped in front, and she hopped on back. I knew it was a bad idea from the start. The horse just wanted to wander everywhere, and it almost knocked Becky off when we ran into some trees. So I chickened out, and, and Becky and I switched places. When Dave switched the saddles, he didn't tighten them very tight because Becky said that she felt like she was going to fall off the whole time. She kept sliding off. We started to head back down the hill, and Becky was having a hard time keeping the horse under control. It took, it took off on her and started to pick up speed as we went down the hill. I thought I was going to fall off. The saddle was still, so, was, was still loose, so Becky was flopping from side to side, and I was barely holding on. It was so scary. My hat flew off, and eventually we regained control of the horse. We caught our breath and continued. The horse started to get tired, so Becky had an easier time of controlling the horse. When we returned to the stream, we crossed it to the other side. Becky insisted that I take control, so I got up front and she got on back. At first it was kind of scary, but at, at the time I got the horse, she was so tired that I had no, no problem controlling her. So far, Becky was still having a good time, as far as I could tell, and we were still having an interesting conversation. We got up to the gate and crossed through it. Then we headed back up the hill, and Becky was freaking out, but she hung on, and we made it safely to the top. By this time, steering the horse was fun, and the horse was pretty easily controlled. Becky was a good teacher, so that made it much easier. But now, the biggest test was going down the hill. I grabbed a, hold, a, a good hold of the reins and headed down the hill, but it turned out the horse was so tired that, he wasn't gonna, that going down wasn't a problem at all. This was the best part of the whole day because while going back down, Becky was leaning against me, which I didn't mind at all. Coming back seemed to go by twice as fast as getting there, and it was about 45 minutes quicker than going up. We took off the saddles and loaded up the horses. Since the horses were so tired, it was a lot easier loading them up this time. We hopped in the truck and headed back to Dave's ranch. There we unloaded the horses and put them back in their pasture. Then we headed up to Dave's house and and talked to Frank, Dave's stepdad and met one of Dave's aunts and uncles who were from Twin Falls. After shooting the breeze for a while, we got back into the dream machine and took off. I took Becky back to her house and told her that she had about three hours to get ready, and then I'd be back to pick her up. When I left her house, I remember thinking how awesome the date was going so far. Little did I know that it would be all, that it would be all downhill from there. 
I got back home. Amber helped me out again by vacuuming out the car and putting some final touches on it. I still hadn't picked up my corsage yet, so I asked Tyrell if he wanted to go for a ride, which I didn't have to ask twice. So we went to Wearmart and picked up the corsage. After we took after we took the long way home, when we got home, I decided I, I took a shower and got ready. It was turning out to be such a beautiful day. I decided to take the top of the car off. I was ready to go and pick her up, but Amber wanted to go for a ride, so she hopped in and I took her for a quick spin. I dropped her off at Centennial's parking lot and went straight over to Becky's house. I pulled up in her driveway, and her little brother and her little brother's friend and her mom were all outside. I was just about ready to go and, and get Becky when I remembered that I forgot the corsage, so I calmly excused myself and, and raced back home. I grabbed the flower and flew back to her house. This time, I was ready and had everything I needed, so I went up and knocked on the door. Her mom let me in, and I followed her upstairs. Becky came out, and I almost fell back down the stairs. Wow. She was wearing a short black dress and had her hair all pulled up. She was looking awesome. I put my tongue back in my mouth, and I put on her corsage, and then we went through the routine, and she put on mine. After a couple of minor wounds, finally got the corsage on me. We took a couple of pictures, then we took off. We headed over to Melanie Trout's house, and along the way, Becky was worried because her hair was being blown around because I took the roof off, but she thought she would be able to tough it out. We got to Mel's house, and everybody was waiting for us. Most of the moms were there with her cameras and even video cameras. After a big fashion show, we loaded up and took off. We got onto Chinon, and the race was on. We all had nice sports cars that we borrowed, so we were testing them out, but weaving back and forth in between each other and being a little stupid. Then when we got onto Broadway, the Broadway Chinon connector, this was the first time I had ever driven it, and it was a total blast. We got to BSU's parking lot and found a place to park. That night, there was a rodeo going on at the stadium, so it was kind of hard to find a parking spot. We had to go uh, through the back way and, and through this cafe where everybody was staring at us. We got our we got our pictures taken, then we got back in our cars and went to dinner. We got lost from the rest of the pack, and I could remember and I couldn't remember how to get to the restaurant. Then I finally found Rob. And we started to follow him, but he just took us in circles because apparently he didn't know either. But we finally found our way, and we parked. When we went inside, we got into the elevator. The elevator was made out of glass, so we had a nice view of the sunset on our way up to the top where the restaurant was. When we got to the top, we all piled out. We told them that we had reservations, which we did, but uh, they said it was going to be a little bit of a wait. Finally, our tables were ready, so we went and sat back down. We got a window seat that had a great view of Boise in the Capitol building. The restaurant was full, and everybody was dressed up in their tuxes and fancy dresses. Almost everybody that was at the restaurant that night was going to prom. Becky ordered some kind of chicken, and I had the New York steak. She really liked her chicken, but my steak was gross. So much for fast, fancy restaurants. It was charcoal on the outside and, and red in the middle, but the potatoes were pretty good. During the dinner, we were having a pretty good conversation. Everything was going pretty smoothly. When we were done, we were all stuffed, but we had some time to waste before the dance, so we ordered dessert. Becky and I, Becky and I both had cheesecake with blueberries. Mmm. It was the best tasting thing about the whole dinner. We got our bills, and mine was over $57. I did some dishes to help pay for it, and then we took off. Just kidding. It was a little cool outside, so we decided to put the top back on the car. When we got back to the dance, and again, we had a hard time finding a spot to park, so parked some in some illegal spot and prayed that we wouldn't get a ticket. We all walked in, and there was a huge line, but we walked, we walked right past everyone because that was the line for the pictures. When we got to the ballroom, hardly anybody was there. We danced for a couple songs, then Becky wanted to go outside and find her friends. That ticked me off, but I didn't say anything. She went to the hall where the line was, so I went and talked to some other people. 
A really good song came on, so I went out to find her. I couldn't find her anywhere, and I talked to another group of guys. I left them, and I was starting to ask around to see if anyone had seen her. I went back into the ballroom, and I found her sitting down by herself over by the refreshments. I went over and sat next to her, and she seemed like she was being she was mad at me for leaving. Oh, well. We went over and found Dave and Rob, and we danced with them. They were pl- playing a bunch of slow songs, which I didn't mind at all. Everything was going great when Dave said, when Dave said that he wanted to go. So we danced one last song, Lady in Red. It was a song that I liked a lot. I was in heaven. As, as we were walking out, a really good song started, so we decided to dance one more song. It was a song that Alicia liked a lot, Depeche Mode, Somebody. After the song, we left. We all parked, we all parked in different spots, so we split up. When we got back to our car, I was relieved to find that I didn't get a ticket. I wasn't really sure where we were supposed to meet, but, but I was pretty sure that it was at Dave's, so we went and drove back to Dave's house. When we got there, no, one's, no one was there. I didn't let Becky know that I wasn't sure where we were supposed to meet, so I told her that we must have gotten there really fast and everybody would be there pretty soon. Dave's mom let us in and we sat down and watched some MTV. About five minutes later, everybody showed up except for Aaron and Mel. They went to his house to grab some stuff. We all got undressed from our fancy outfits and put on some casual clothes. We went back and watched TV for about another 20 minutes. Everybody was starting to fall asleep when Aaron finally showed up. We took off and went up to a stinker station to get gas and to buy some chocolate chocolate bars for later. Then we ended up uh, heading up Highway 55 towards McCall. Everybody was starting to show off by passing each other and averaging about 80 miles per hour on the on the curvy roads. But it was so late that no other cars were coming and no other cars were coming and we felt pretty safe. We got to Banks in about 30 minutes and pulled off and waited for everyone to catch up. I was told that the place that we were going was just a little past Banks. Boy, was I wrong. Aaron took the lead, Dave followed, then me, and Aaron was the caboose. We headed off the, up the mountains. The roads were okay, except there were a few parts that were still under construction because of some landslides. After a while, Aaron and Dave lost us, and I couldn't see if Rob was behind us. But Becky and I were having a good time telling ghost stories and talking about scary things, so I didn't think much of it. But then after a while, we started to wonder if we had missed a turnoff or something, and so I decided to stop and see if Rob was behind us. About 10 minutes later, he finally caught up and pulled up next to us. We rolled down our windows and Rob said that he was going to turn around. That This was a lot further than he expected and it seemed like he was really ticked off. So he turned around and I looked up at the clock. It was 1.45 in the morning. I told Becky that we would keep going till 2 and if we didn't find him by then, we would turn around and find something else to do. Everything was still going great. She seemed like she was having fun. We were exchanging some good stories and just having a good time. It was about 1.57 when we finally found Dave and Aaron pulled off to the side of the road. I told Rob, I told them about Rob and that he was ticked off. Dave said, well, come on, we only have a little bit more to go. I could tell that Becky didn't want to go on and go hot tubbing, but I figured that we were already up there, so we might as well. Besides, it might turn out to be really fun. So we went ahead and followed them. It took about another 15 minutes, but we finally got there. You couldn't see much because it was totally dark, but you could hear the water running and you could see the steam rising. It looked totally cool. Dave and Aaron stayed back and started a fire while the rest of us went down to find the hot springs. We got to the huts, we got to the springs, but you couldn't find anything deeper than a, about a foot and a half. But we, we found the best spot that we could and we decided to wait for Dave and Aaron. We had a, I, I had a blanket with me uh, and found a flat part of the rocks, so we actually laid down and went to sleep. <laughs> A little later, they came back and told us that we were in the wrong spot, so we hiked around a huge rock, and they showed us a huge pool with a waterfall and everything. Everybody everybody got in except for Becky. She didn't want to get in because she thought she would be colder when she got out. So I just sat by her and put my legs into the water. Everybody was telling her to get in, but she wouldn't. I felt so bad. We came all the way up here, and she, it was too cold to get in. 
We stayed there for a while, and we all got out and then went back to the campfire. And we got up there, and we all dried off. We all sat around the campfire and talked, but Becky was just uh, sitting there staring, looking into the fire. She didn't look like she was having fun. We roasted some marshmallows and had some s'mores. They were so good. Dave was setting up camp to stay the night while we were all sitting around uh, the fire and talking. Everybody started to get real tired, so they all decided to hit the sack. I could tell things weren't going too well, so I just decided to go home. We said our goodbyes and took off. I wasn't very tired at all, so I was okay, but Becky started to doze off, so I turned on the radio. About 10 miles away from the springs, we were coming around a corner, and there was a huge rock about the size of a human brain sitting there in the middle of the road. I swerved to miss it, but I caught it with the inside of my tire. Boom! It shook the car, and Becky woke up and said, What was that? I said, We just nailed a huge rock, and it could have given us a flat tire. Well, sure enough, about 100 years later, I could hear this wob, 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 wob noise, and I said, Oh, crap, that sounds like it could be a flat tire. I pulled over and crossed my fingers and got out of the car. I felt the tire and bowed my head. The, the tire was flat as a pancake. I got back in the car and told her the good news. I, pro- I, I popped the trunk and prayed that there would be a spare tire. After looking around for a while, I couldn't even find the compartment for the spare tire. But you know how sports cars are? Everything is so compact and small. I was looking all over the place, but I couldn't find it. I finally got out the owner's manual and I discovered that he had to unscrew a side compartment in the back of the trunk. We didn't have a screwdriver, so I got creative and screwed the screw by using the back of my keys uh, as a replacement. We got it off, and everything was, looked like it was going to work out. It was pitch, pitch black, so I turned on the headlights of the car so I could at least have some light. I jacked up the car and started to undo all the nuts on the wheel. Everything was starting to go our way, and we would be out of there in no time at all. I got to the last nut and couldn't get it off. The nut seemed like it was too big for the wrench. It wouldn't fit over the net. It wouldn't fit over the nut. Ah, I couldn't believe this. I had the woman of my dreams with me. It was the night of our senior prom, and it was turning out to be a nightmare. I felt so sorry. She was just standing there smiling with her arms folded, freezing her butt off. I was starting to, be- I was starting to become real frustrated. I was, starting- I was trying to think of anything that I could use just to get that last nut off. I even prayed that if Heavenly Father would loosen that nut, I would be perfect for the rest of my life. <laughs> but that didn't work. We started to put our heads together, and we came up with a plan. We could use the can of air that is used to pump up the spare tire and pump up the flat tire till we got back to camp. Then we would wake up Dave and see what we could do from there. Just as we were about to execute our brilliant plan, a truck started to drive by. This was about the third one that night, so I didn't think they'd stop. Becky stared them down and started to go into the middle of the road. She said, they better stop. They better stop. They better stop. <laughs> well, it worked out, and they stopped. They asked us if they could help us out, and we said, yeah, could you give us a ride back to our friends? We told him where they were, and he said that he would help. I put everything back in the car and locked it up. Then we hopped back into the truck and headed back towards our friends. We found out that the guys that were helping us out were going back to work, and they flew a helicopter for the forest service. We got back to the campground and thanked them, and they dropped us off. I walked over to, the where, to where they were sleeping and tapped Dave on the head. He rolled over and said, Tim, what are you doing here? He said, I ran over a rock and got a flat tire told him he said holy cow then he went back to sleep <laughs> by this time Aaron had woken up so I asked him if he could if I could borrow his car to find a telephone he said sure so we found the keys to his bug and took off I couldn't find reverse when we got in and, uh, and when I finally did I stalled it I jumped out of the car and asked him if he would drive us to, to a phone he said sure and he jumped jumped out of his warm sleeping bag and got in our car got in his car and we went over to an old rundown gas station where there was a phone. 
I made a collect call home, and Dennis answered. I told him what had happened and where we were, and he seemed to be taking it pretty good. He told me that um, those kind of co- those kind of tires cost about a hundred bucks. I was sure that he was overestimating, and it would only that at, at the most it would cost fifty bucks. He told me that he would call Brad and then call me back. Then Becky called her mom, and it sounded like she had almost had a heart attack when she told her where we were. But besides that, she seemed to be taking it pretty well. After that, we stood around for about the next ten minutes. And it was about, and by that time it was about 6:30 in the morning. Then my mom called me back, and after we played 20 questions, I found out that what I needed to know. The last nut that I was having a hard time getting off was a special lock nut. I'd never heard of a lock nut, but it turns out there's a special tool in the glove box that you use to get it off. After then, after answering some more questions, I hung up, and Aaron took us back to our to our car. He dropped us off and told us that he would go back and wake everybody up, then load everything and catch up with us. While we fixed the tire and slowly, slowly made our way home, he took off and I went to go fix the tire. The car was parked slightly uphill and I found that the jack had bent because of that. The bad thing was that it was bent so bad that the tire was touching the ground and it wouldn't jack up anymore. But <clears throat> but it would jack down, so we jacked it down and decided to wait till Aaron and Dave caught up. And then we'd use one of their jacks to finish the job. It was so cold that we got in the car and t- to turn the heater on, but it would only cold, blow cold air. I tried to start it, but it wouldn't start. Ah! I tried to start the car a couple more times, and it would almost turn over, but it never did. So I decided to let the car sit for a little while longer to see if it would restore itself. After what seemed like forever, about 20 minutes later, Dave and Aaron came flying around the corner. They slammed on their brakes, and they were surprised to see us still sitting there. I told them what was wrong, and then Aaron got the jack out from his bug. It was a totally different jack. It had a main rod with a smaller rod sticking out the side of it. He would jack it up, and the smaller rod would go up the side of the main rod. The problem is, when he stuck it under the cars and started jacking it up, it would only touch the plastic frame, and it wouldn't t- touch the main metal frame. So as he jacked it up, you could see you could see that it was starting starting to bend the, the plastic frame. But by then, I was so frustrated. I was just like, just jack it up. I'll pay for everything when I when we get done with it. So he jacked it up, and we put the spare tire on. Then we pumped up the spare with that can of instant air. The tire looked like a big donut, but it looked like it might hold. I tried to start the car again and wouldn't start, so Aaron said that if we put the car in reverse, then we could jump start the car. And then pop the clutch and jump start the car. He got in the car and we pushed him down the hill. He popped the clutch and we were in business. It fired right up. We got all our cars running, turned on our hazard lights, and headed up the road about 25 miles per hour. Dave was in front, I was in the middle, and Aaron was behind. While going back, I was extra careful with the spare tire, making sure that I dodged all the ruts and potholes in its path. I was starting to feel a lot more relieved, and everything was going pretty well. We stopped at Crouch and found the nearest car or garage. We showed the man the tire, and he said that it was not fixable because of the cut in the sidewall. Oh well, would I expect that everything would work out? So So we put some more air in the spare tire, and Becky bought me a grape drink and a chocolate cookie. I think because she was afraid I'd, t- I'd fall asleep. Let me tell you, this is not a good combination, especially in the morning and after you haven't brushed your teeth for a while. But it did work. Dave had to get Allison home because she had to go to work at 11 o'clock, so they took off. Aaron uh, got some gas and filled up his tires, and then we started back down the road going about 35 miles an hour. Becky wouldn't go to sleep because she was afraid that I would fall asleep and drive off the road. She wasn't too far from the truth. It was so hard to stay awake because it felt so good to close my eyes. I hadn't gone to sleep uh, for over 25 hours. 
I didn't see how Becky was staying awake. It was weird because I would doze off and then wake up just seconds later, but it seemed like I had dreamed a full dream. Even when I was totally awake, it was hard to drive straight. I looked in my rearview mirror and Aaron was making fun of me by swerving his car back and forth, back and forth. To help out, I turned on the radio, rolled down the window, and had Becky talk to me. We finally got to Banks and got back on the Highway 55. We still had our hazard lights on and we were going slow. We would build up a little line of five or six cars behind us and then we'd pull off and let them pass, then get back on the road, and then pull over again as soon as it built up again. It seemed to be going by pretty quickly and by horseshoe bend I was starting to feel pretty confident that the tire would hold. We headed into Eagle and as we turned off and we turned off our hazard lights. At the Eagle Chinon intersection, Aaron turned right and we headed left. We thanked him and we headed back towards he- Becky's house. We didn't get there till about 11 o'clock in the morning. We got all our stuff out of the car and we walked up to the door. It's funny, even after all this, I was wondering if I'd get a kiss, but it didn't happen. I gave her a hug and apologized for everything that had happened. And she just turned around and went through the door. When I got home, I parked the car in the driveway and just fell asleep. I woke up about 15 minutes later, cleaned out the car, and then went downstairs into my bedroom and crashed again. But before I could even get any sleep, my mom woke me up and said I couldn't go to sleep until I'd taken care of everything. Talk about torture. So I called up all the 24-hour service places and only found one guy that would help me out, but he wanted $50 an hour. No, thank you. Then I called up Brad to tell him about the situation. I think that was the hardest, hardest part of this whole story. I felt so bad. When I asked to borrow the car, I never told him his plans because I knew that it would eliminate any possibility of him lending the car to us. I didn't lie to him, but I also didn't tell him the whole truth. So at 6 o'clock in the morning, he gets a phone call telling him, telling him that his car is near Stanley and that it has a flat tire. So after apologizing and listen, listening to how I felt, I came to the conclusion that he was pretty ticked off. He wanted to come over and look at the car. I had to hurry and get my tux back, so my mom drove me to take it back. On the way, I was telling her everything that had happened and all the things that I could have done to prevent it, like turn around when Rob did, or turn around when we eventually met up with him, or just simply miss the rock. While talking with her, with, with all the pressure that I was feeling and being as tired as I was, I was almost in tears. I was now praying that they wouldn't find anything wrong with the tux. <clears throat> I turned it in and they looked it over and said, well, we're going to have to charge you a fine. What? I couldn't believe this. I could have cried. They continued, your cufflinks are missing. Oh, I, for, I forgot that I put the cufflinks in my pocket so I wouldn't lose them. So I gave her the cufflinks and she said that everything else was okay. And I didn't have to pay a fine. That made me start to feel a little better. On the way home, my mom said, quote, wouldn't it be great if this was all just a big dream? Close quote. Oh, how sweet that would be if I could just wake up and have it be Saturday morning. Then I pinched myself and came back to reality. When I got home, Brad was there waiting for me. And he seemed to be taking things a little bit better. He showed me the tire, and I found out, <clears throat> and I found out that when I ran over the rock, it pinched the inside of the tire, cutting it, and in the process, bending the rim. No, one more thing. I could have. All I could do was laugh as I nodded and he, as he explained things to me. I asked him if he saw anything else wrong with the car, remembering in the back of my mind the dent that we'd placed in the outer frame. He said, "Nope." My eyes almost popped out of their sock, and I looked down where we had placed the jack, and it had popped out on its own. Yes! 
Finally, something going my way. Then I did some more calling around, and I found out that if that he had custom wheels that are not repairable, of course. I also found out that they would have to be shipped from Pontiac, Michigan. And not only that, but they also cost $400. That was twice as much as Prom itself. I also found out that the cost of the tire that I thought Dennis was overestimating to be $100 really cost $200. So that's a total of $600 just for the car. My $200 prom budget went out the door, and I ended up having to pay over $800. Now, for a kid only making 6 bucks an hour, that's a ton of money. There wasn't much more we could do that day since it was Sunday, so I begged my mom to please let me go to sleep. She made me promise that I would take care of everything the next day, which I did. So basically, after being up for over 30 hours, I finally got to go to sleep. After that, things weren't the same between Becky and I. Things were a little weird, and I tried to joke with her about the whole situation, but she wasn't having any of it. Basically, I found out that she wasn't the girl of my dreams after all, because if she couldn't roll with the punches, then she wasn't the one for me. I joked with my friends, saying that I dodged a bullet, and in fact, I dedicated the song, Unanswered Prayers, by Garth Brooks to her. Well, we graduated a few weeks later, and I haven't seen her much since then. I ran into her a couple of times, but like the words in the song say, the spark was gone, and it just makes me appreciate what I have now that much more. The end. Karen made me say that last part. Just kidding. Josh also asked me to share with a couple of the scriptures that I learned a special way on my mission. So basically on my mission we had a bunch of uh, index cards and there would be two or three scriptures on each card and we'd have to memorize them, just tons and tons of cards, like we're talking hundreds. But uh, long story short, um, there's an elder named Elder Mackey. He's one of those super talented guys that can do anything. He is an artist and in fact he works for Disney now and, and was just really creative. and. He uh, came up with a couple ways to uh, help us memorize songs, so um, here we go. The first song is Mosiah 319, and this is how it goes. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been, from the fall of Adam and will be, forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man. And becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. And becometh as a child submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child to submit to his father and mother, everybody now, sister and brother. That's basically it. The next one is Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 It's based off uh, Nirvana's classic, Come As You Are. But this is how we did it. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give, give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, not the best, but uh, you get the idea. Those were the only scripture songs that I could remember, but uh, doing this also reminded me of a couple things from my mission that I wanted to share. Uh, in the MTC, I was uh, the district leader, and we had an awesome district, a lot of cool uh, elders and sisters in there, and just had, we had a real good spirit and awesome teachers as well. 
Well, about two weeks into that, um, we got a couple of visa waiters added to our district, and they were waiting for their visas um, to go to Australia. And so they were um, obviously upset that they couldn't go and just added a different spirit to our, to our um, district. And Well, one day we were playing basketball, and one of the elders uh, got his shoulder hurt, one of the visa waiters. He got his shoulder hurt, and he had to go. He went to the doctor, and they said that he dislocated his shoulder and that he had to be there like another four weeks or something. And so he was super ticked about that and and uh, just, yeah, I was mad. And uh, anyways, later on that day in class, um, our teacher found out what was going on. He's like, hey, did you ask for a blessing? He's like, no, I didn't. So um, he said, well, who would you like to give that blessing or would you like one? And long story short, he ended up picking me. And I'd never given a blessing before. I'd seen and heard a couple, but uh, definitely wasn't the voice for any of those uh, for any blessings. So anyways, he asked me to do it and, uh, I didn't know how to do it, but, uh, in the little, um, mission book there, there's, they give you a little books. We call them the white Bibles. They're about the size of, uh, of, um, of a passport and they fit in your, in your breast pocket there, had all the mission rules and all the priesthood blessings and how to give them that kind of thing. So long story short, he sits down, I hold that book in my, my hands and kind of hold, held open to the, the um, part where is you know how to give a priest a blessing. <clears throat> so we all gathered around. He was anointed with oil, and then I came to seal the anointing and and just basically read right off the pages there of, of how to give a blessing. Then it gets to the part where it says, "Give a blessing as the Spirit dictates." And I, I remember feeling the Spirit that uh, I should bless him that he should be healed. So I said that and closed up the blessing. And then uh, next day or so later, he went in to see the doctor, and the doctor's. Obviously, they're just uh, amazed because he'd he'd been healed, and and uh, long story short, he got his uh, he got his release to to get his visa, and he got his visa and, and went on his way. So, uh, to me, I, I got an early testimony of uh, the power of the priesthood, and that's one of the spiritual gifts that I've been given is the the blessing of healing, and that that was a pretty cool experience. The next uh, experience I want to share was kind of a similar deal um, with blessings, and and this one was. Um, when I was in my mission in uh, North Carolina. So we were in a town called Kinston, and part of the town there's a, a trailer park, pretty net, pretty, pretty uh, dirty trailer park or whatever you want to say, but um, kind of some humble circumstances there. But long, anyway, we got a store, we got a call um, from someone in the ward that was kind of less active. We didn't really know who they were, but uh, they have they have a lot of faith in the elders and what they can do. So. Uh, this lady gives us a call and says, hey, can you come over and bless my baby? we we got to take her to the hospital. She's not breathing well. And uh, anyways, just get over here as quick as you can. So we called up, I think it was a mission president or elder president, something like that. And uh, we rushed over there. And um, we get there. And like I said, just a dirty old trailer and just very humble circumstances. And uh, when we met the baby, it's just probably a month or so old. And as it was breathing, you could... <laughs> You could hear it kind of gasping for breath, and it had kind of this sound to to her to her breathing. It was just kind of scary. We're like, "You don't need a blessing. You need a hospital." But uh, they have a lot of faith, like I was saying. And and uh, so my companion uh, anointed the baby, and and instead of putting our hands on their head, we actually put our hands underneath the baby, kind of like when you do a baby blessing. And and uh, I remember um, giving that that baby a blessing, and and I don't remember the words I said in the blessing, but I remember in the middle of the the blessing and her breathing uh, cleared up. So it was like the, the little gaspy um, breathing went away and it was just clear as a bell. And um, we 
closed the blessing and the mom was in tears and was just really thankful and and uh, we heard you know it was basically a miracle and uh, the baby was healed and heard later on that everything was fine with the baby but that was cool and I remember walking out of that trailer just you know just impacted by the spirit and what we'd witnessed and and I remember looking off to the side as we were walking uh, out, like I said, outside of the trailer. And, and there was a dad talking to his son. And they were, I'm not sure what was going on, but he's yelling at him and not beating him up, but being pretty physical with him. And I just remember wanting to grab him by the chest and pulling him in into that into the trailer we were just leaving and, and have him feel the spirit that we felt and just the, the difference that it was. But um, anyways, a couple of lessons learned there, but, but that was a pretty cool experience. A lot of mission stories, but... Uh, one of the last one I'll leave is uh, we were in a town called Havelock, and there was a, another small town, probably about a 20, 30 minute bike ride away. I can't remember the name of the small town, but every once in a while we'd get investigators and we had to go over there. And the only way to that town was like a small road, kind of think of like Highway 21 kind of road, except for not in the hills, just a, kind of a narrow little highway to get over there. And um, Sometimes we had a car, half the month we had a car, and half the month we didn't. But it happened this time, we got a referral to go out there, and we all, all we had was our bikes. And it was always kind of scary going down that road because cars, they, a lot of people knew who we were. We, they, you know, you see two guys riding on bikes, they, they know we're missionaries, so they just whiz right past us. And I literally had, like, some rearview mirrors clip our handlebars. But uh, anyway, so we, we take this little, um, I don't know, 10 mile ride or so into this to this little town and we get there and and we do our media referral i don't remember if they were there or not that not the main point main point of the story but i remember after that we started just tracking out there since we didn't make it out there too often and, and as we we're doing that we saw these dark clouds gather and we knew well in north carolina when it rains it can rain you know it can rain sideways there just when it comes down it, it can come down hard and that's what those clouds kind of look like and so we knew we were a good, you know, 30-minute bike ride, 20, 30-minute bike ride back to Havelock. And so we were like, okay, Elder, we better get we better get going. And so uh, we went back to our bikes and unlocked them uh, from the little street sign there. And, and before we did that, we are like, my, my companion, he's like, we should, we should probably say a prayer. And he's like, Elder, will you say a prayer that we make it back safe? And so I remember saying a prayer that, uh, you know, because it's dangerous enough as is, but if it's raining, it can get, and like I said, rain sideways, and it's like hard to see. And and so we we're kind of worried about um, being able to, for the cars to be able to see us. So we uh, said a prayer that the, that the Lord would uh, you know, hold off the reins until we until we got into Havelock. So you know, faith without works is dead. So we jumped on our bikes and biked as fast as we could. And the, my companion at the time had one leg shorter than the other, and so he couldn't bike real fast. So I kind of let him go head out. And long story short, we just zipped it as as, as fast as we could and as fast as he could. And, and uh, as we were going along there, we feel a little you know, a little mist of rain, and we knew it was coming any second now, and just the dark clouds were there, and, and I'm sure the Lord was, was holding them off for us, but I remember specifically, we've, we made it back into town, and as soon as we passed the Welcome to Havelock sign, the uh, heavens opened, and just gushed down, just poured down rain on us, like we were, we were soaked within two seconds, and I remember getting into town, and, and uh, you know, probably 50 yards into town, we could pull off and get into the side streets, and, and make our way back to the to our apartment, but uh I remember my elder turning to me saying, you know, elder, wait, you, you prayed that the Lord would hold off the rain, still have like he should have prayed that he held off till till we got to our apartment. But we had a good laugh about that. But uh, the power of prayer works. Hey, everybody, this is Luke. 
Dad, that was crazy. There's two scenes about the story that none of us can believe. Number one is that Grandma let you go on an overnight day. Wow, Dad, you really are a great salesman. Number two is how much that tire costs. That's crazy, Dad. Oh, well, you're still the best. Thanks for listening, everybody. I love Uncle Dean. <laughs> I love Uncle Dean. Bye. He wants that root beer. <laughs>